The opinions expressed by the guest on this episode do not reflect the opinions of the host or this podcast. This episode of the Council of the First Ones was recorded on April 5th, 2020. And welcome to another episode of Council of the First Ones. I'm your host, Kelly. Joining me tonight is my good friend, Renee. How are you doing today, Renee? Oh, fine, like every other day in my home. So, you know, nothing going on, but I'm glad I'm here. Thank you. Also joining us is Sean. Hi, Sean. <laughs> Hi, I'm, I'm feeling like Bill Murray, where I want to say, and it's quarantine day. Again, you're gonna be, <laughs> but I'm glad. I'm glad to be talking to everybody. A good time. We this also have. This is a, this is a good time to have this podcast because you know we're, everybody's staying in. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we also have Rex joining us. Hi, Rex. Hey, Kelly. It's terrific to be back. Also joining us is David. Hi, Dave. Hi, it's so great to be here tonight, calling from the beautiful state of Washington. David, it looks like you brought a special guest with with you tonight. Would you like to introduce him? I would love to. I am very honored to have Roger Sweet join us tonight. He's the man who came up with He-Man and gave him his name and was, you know, one of the head designers at Mattel in the 80s and so uh, you may have recognized you may recognize him from uh that uh, netflix show the toys that made us and uh he was at PowerCon this past year as well so it's wonderful to have him here hi roger hi thank you thank you we are excited to have you here especially uh going a little bit into your history and usually when uh, we have guests, we like to ask them, um, how did they get started in the uh, toy industry? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I did 15 years of non-toy product design before I got into toys. Would you like to hear anything about that? I mean, what, what did you start off in? I started out working in a barn in a design office in Bath, Ohio. Uh, which is a sub, which is a city right next to Fairlawn, Ohio, where I was raised. And, uh, I designed, uh, uh, Rubbermaid, uh, appliances and products, uh, for about a year. And then I moved to Chicago and worked for Dave Chapman, one of the top design firms in Chicago. And I worked on, um, Hamilton Beach products there. And then uh, after that, I transferred to New York City, and I worked for Walter Dorman Teague Associates, and I designed packaging for about three years. And one of the most outstanding bottles that I came up with was the original Scope mouthwash bottle. Oh, very cool. And this Scope bottle in 1979 was voted by a panel of packaging design judges for Fortune magazine as one of the 35 best packages of the 20th century. Wow. 
And then I also designed the original Downy handle bottles, which revolutionized the blow molding industry because this was the first free-form bottle, blow-molded bottle ever made. And before that, all the bottles had been geometric and rectangular with with a, a spindly little handle. And these were the first bottles that had free-form flowing handles and design. Huh, very interesting. And in addition to that, because I revolutionized the blow molding industry, not long after that, the Mark's big wheel came out, and it was blow molded. Oh, I so, see. So, so the designs that I did on the Downey bottle strongly influenced other design of blow molding type pro- blow molded type products. Very interesting. Very interesting. Huh. And then after that, I transferred out to the Seattle area in general, and I was put in charge of 17 designers designing the first interiors of the Boeing 747 jumbo jet. Wow. <laughs> nice. Amazing. And I, and I designed working with 91 engineers as a single industrial designer. I designed an underfloor galley system that would feed two complete meals to a maximum of 490 passengers on one flight. Wow. wow. I'm amazed how you how you made so many amazing products and you're just and on this I journey. I went to work for, for Mattel after I worked on Masters product. I designed the most expensive Barbie, created and designed the most expensive Barbie accessory of all time, the Barbie Electronic Magical Mansion, which was a $350 playhouse. And I have had that. (laughs) You did? Wow. How'd you like that? I actually, well, I wound up taking my green paint to it to make it more of my castle for Eternia. (laughs) My parents. That's so great. My parents raised the tomboy, unfortunately. They kept giving me Barbies, but couldn't get me away from my masters. Well, that's good. That's good. Well, I once heard that 43% of all purchases for masters products were made for girls. Oh, really? Wow. I've never heard that. Uh-huh. And that's that's is that including Shira or just Masters of the Universe? No, just Masters. Oh wow, very cool. Because Shira came out Masters of the Universe, the original series came out in 1982 and uh, right. and Shira came out in 1985. Mm-hmm. Well, now that I'm hearing about your career, I am curious, how did you jump to Mattel? Well, I was working on the Boeing 747 in Seattle, and I wanted to move down to the California area. So I got a job at Lockheed working on the Lockheed L-1011 jumbo jets. And I worked there for three years, but then the company was in horrible shape and had to lay me off. And so then I went to work for Mattel Temporary because Mattel wasn't doing very well either in 1972. So I, I worked at Mattel. I went to work for Mattel on April 18, 1972, and I worked in preliminary design for a short while, and then they were going to lay me off, and so they got me a job in international, and I worked on international department designs for three years. 
And then from the international department, in three years, I transferred into Derek Gable's preliminary design group in Mattel Preliminary Design. And one of Gable's uh, uh, tasks or assignment was to work on new male action figure lines and existing ones. So I designed Big Jim products for a little while. Hmm. Okay. And so the this the person you referenced, I'm trying to find his name in my notes. He was your boss, basically. He was my. He was a director, and I and I was a senior staff designer, and then later promoted to a design projects manager. Oh, I see. Very interesting. Hmm. Yeah. And so you were you worked on Big Jim. Yeah. One of the and, products I came up with for Big Jim was disguised Big Jim. Was that the one where the head would switch? I'm not sure. I don't think so. But he, but he did have some kind of disguise on him. I don't remember too much about him. Because I did, I do remember Big Jim was kind of a little bit before my time. But I yeah. had one where he had a falcon that was going to be the Zor, and I had one uh, like a disguise. He had like a trench coat, and he had like a big mop hair. And like his face would rotate. Again, those were the only two big gyms I had. Uh, I don't think that was the one that I designed, but you it know, could have been. <laughs> you know, Destiny struck when Mattel declined to pay for the rights to produce what would turn out to be an incredibly historic toy line, Star Wars. Yeah. And well, and, in 19, uh, uh, in, in about 1975 uh, or something like that, Ray Wagner, the U.S. president of the company of Mattel, passed on Star Wars. And then it became a huge hit coming out in 1977. And so Mattel really and wanted. So, and so, <laughs> and so uh, Big Jim was selling poorly and not particularly outstanding, and there were a couple other toy lines that came in, but they didn't do very well either, and, and Mattel badly wanted a proprietary toy line that they could promote and sell where they didn't have to pay royalties to an outside inventor. And a question I always wondered, because we, we hear, again, how Star Wars changed the toy market for boys, but... Yeah. You were there. What was the ideal or what was the standard for boys' toys before the Star Wars toys? Well, I'd say G.I. Joe was always a, a, a good-selling toy line. And, and G.I. Joe was originally, I think, about a 12-inch figure. And then they reduced the scale of the G.I. Joe figures down to about like four or four and a half inches. But G.I. Joe was a was a big selling toy line for many years. It's fascinating that uh, you came up with this idea of a fantasy make-believe toy line. And I'm reading the from the idea disclosure uh, document you submitted in May of 1980. Yeah, and I'm going to turn to that myself, okay? Sure. Hang absolutely. on just for a second, because that toy line bought the idea of the barbarian fantasy theme into existence at Mattel. Okay, I've got it. Fantasy make-believe. 
Right. And so see this, this toy line, right. I wrote this idea disclosure and down at the bottom, you'll see two contributors, Roger Sweet and Diana Troop. Right. But I originated this line and I was just a nice guy to let her sign it as well. But she did not originate this idea. But the idea was to take Frazetta-type characters and make them into a toy line. So let, let, let me just stress one thing. So I bought the Barbarian Fantasy theme into existence at Mattel mm-hmm. as a designer. Absolutely. That was my... That was one of my major contributions. Right, and you're in the disclosure. You talk about this this toy line that would uh, combine parts of be combined with parts of Conan and uh, yeah. Flash Gordon yeah. and Star Wars. Yeah. That's a very and, important idea disclosure. Yeah, and but I let me under- just interrupt and give you something that you have never heard of. Okay, that was incredibly important. I also originated an idea called Exercise Man. Have you ever heard of this? No, I haven't. Anyhow, I came up with this super powerful, physically powerful guy that was 12 inches tall, and he had a dial on his chest, and you could push on his head and feet, and you could pull on his arms and legs and push on them, and, and and it would register the strength of it, on his chest. Oh, wow. And my barbarian theme He-Man, He-Man trio He-Man, at the time Arnold Schwarzenegger was Mr. Olympia. He was six feet one and weighed 230 pounds. My He-Man trio He-Man at six feet one would weigh 750 pounds. Wow. <laughs> my goodness. And... <laughs> And uh, this bar, this exercise man that I came up with at six feet one would weigh 800 pounds. Wow. And this was, and, and, and the, the exercise man idea disclosure was written April 26, 1979, a year and a half before I originated He-Man. Oh, I see. So this was the first super powerful guy originated at Mattel by a long shot. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. And, 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 and it's important because this guy was, I've got illustrations of this guy, and he was incredibly powerfully built. Oh, you've got some illustrations of him. Oh, that would be fun to look at. <laughs> Which yeah. begs yeah. to the other question, um, did he even get to the design stage? Did he actually work on him? Is there a copy of him? Of who? Exercise uh, man? Yes. Did he I get to the sculpting? I never a model of him. All I have is the idea disclosure and and uh, two illus- two uh, 19 inch by well they're eight and a half by 11 illustrations now, but they were originally 19 inch by 24 inch illustrations, and they're full color illustrations. And he was a totally bald headed guy. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Renee. <laughs> Yeah, the best-looking yeah. guys are bald. <laughs> and he didn't have a beard That's true. <laughs> uh, but let me say this also about my He-Man trio He-Man figures. They were nine and a half inch tall, and wow. they were reduced to five and a half inches for the 19, for the original series Masters line in 1982. 
but their proportions were exactly the same. Oh, I see. And uh, for reference... And, and, and all seven of the original series mass, 1982 Masters figures and many of the other figures had exactly the same port proportion as my He-Man trio He-Man scaled down. And what we're talking about is Bullet Head, Tank Head, and He-Man, the three figures yeah. that well, uh, models. What that I he... did, those three He-Man trio He-Man figures, I... I uh, I took a big gym figure and I put him in a battle action stance and then I added a huge amount of clay to him and then I sculpted him in clay in two days and then I gave the the uh, the the uh, clay sculpture with He Man with uh, Big Jim in the middle to the Mattel mold shop and they made five plaster casts. And I took those master casts, and three of them I made into the three different He-Man of the He-Man trio. And the reason I did the themes that I did was that in in middle uh, 1980 we had a, a, a theme test with children and mothers, and the GI Joe theme and the Star Wars theme and the Barbarian Fantasy themes came out the strongest. And so that's why I selected those three themes to do my three He-Man trio He-Man. Now, I took, once I had the, one of those white plaster casts, I took that cast to Mark Taylor in visual design. I was in preliminary design in another part of the building. And I took those, one of those white casts to Mark Taylor in visual design and Mark Taylor looked at it. I went into his cubicle, and he looked at it, and he said, what are you calling him? These exact words. I said, He-Man. He said, in these exact words, you shouldn't show it. It's amateurish. But I said, hey, I, I have to show it because I can't get any other model-making help. And I didn't tell him that I was planning to make two, three figures all together and dress them up and everything. So all he saw was a white plaster cast. And so uh, in a couple days, he came back to me with a very rough drawing, first drawing of He-Man. It had a very puny physique. He was standing in a relaxed pose. It was a black line on white paper drawing. He uh, he had those... Uh, 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 band wrap leather swaddling boots and and I was only able to use and he had an expressionless face and I was only able to use three outfit parts from the drawing that he gave me the chest halter the fur uh, shorts and the fur cape and those are Mark Taylor's total contribution to the origination of He-Man and 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 the He-Man trio and the Barbarian He-Man trio. Well, and those those three models. In addition to that, Mark Taylor uses two drawings to claim that he originated He-Man. One of those is the unnamed, later named Vicor, which was a uh, illustration that he did. And it, again, it shows a very a physically puny guy line drawing. 
with uh, with an expressionless face with swaddling boots and and uh and then later on he did another illustration called Torax Hero of Free History and this draw this illustration is proven to have been done long after I originated He-Man and so is the other illustration so Mark Taylor had absolutely nothing to do with creating He-Man and the He-Man trio except for three outfit parts for the for the He-Man trio you 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 talked to me about that fantasy make believe illustration I originated the barbarian fantasy theme for a lead male action figure at Mattel. In addition, I originated the tremendous physique for uh, for He-Man. I originated the battle axe and stance. I originated the uh, swivel action waist, and I originated the uh, uh, very ornate sword that you see, and his helmet and his shin guards. And like I say, Taylor only originated three outfit parts from that. Uh, yes, uh, you know we know that there's this uh, kind of a his you know a long dispute over who did what within the company yeah. and developing yeah. the the toys. And uh, yeah. I wanted to I wanted to touch well on a couple of things. One, now, really now quick... let me just say one thing in defense of Mark Taylor. Sure, Mark Taylor took the He-Man physique, and gave it to Skeletor. But he originated the idea for Skeletor, and Skeletor is a terrific bad guy figure for, for Master. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Well, it's a great great pair, He-Man yeah. and Skeletor. And not only that, I co-originated Castle, the original Castle Grayskull prototype with Mark Taylor, but he added the skull motif, and that was just terrific. That was a great playset, you know. Which makes things interesting because I hear, I've seen the documentaries, and now I'm thinking, what was your idea for this? Was there going to be a storyline with this? Were you just going to customize? Because if I remember, you were going, your idea was to add to the figures. Like, we got the figure, like Big Jim, and we can give him weapons and armor and all that. Did you have a storyline in mind when you just created that, or was it going to be Not more? Let, let, let me tell you how the Barbarian Fantasy theme was selected at Mattel, okay? The, the, uh, the, the uh, current military He-Man trio He-Man figure was G.I. Joe Enhanced, and the, and the space, the futuristic space military He-Man trio He-Man figure based on Star Wars was Star Wars Enhanced. But both of those themes had been done in major male action figure lines. So Mattel selected the Barbarian theme because it hadn't been done. Hmm. And I knew, you know, that I, I could have taken any one of those three themes and expanded it like crazy with amazing product. Mm-hmm. But after they selected, after marketing selected the Barbarian Fantasy theme, then I, I worked on that. Well, and yes, you, you took those models to a, a Mattel product show. and Yeah, uh, I went to, I took the three He-Man, first of all, let's talk about that product conference. 
Sure. This product conference took place on December 18, 1980. There were four product concepts shown at that product conference. One of them was He-Man, which I showed alone by myself. There were three other product conf- there were three other product male action product concepts that were shown. One of them was called Can He Do It, as in Can He Do It, about a race car stuntman who gets in all kinds of wrecks but seems to come out unscathed. And that concept was by Garrett Gable, and he developed it on his own and presented it. There were two other product concepts shown. One was Kid Gallant, which was originated by Diana Troop in in Derek Gable's preliminary design group. But all of the development work on it was done in beautiful 19-inch by 24-inch uh, line drawing illustrations by Mark Taylor. All of the de- development was done by Mark Taylor. Then in Derek Gable's preliminary design group, there was another designer by the name of Pete White, and he came up with a concept called Robin and the Space Hoods. And what this was was Robin Hood taken into futuristic space. And Pete White came up with the concept, but Mark Taylor did all all of the illustrations, several beautiful 19-inch by 24-inch line-drawing illustrations, and he spent a huge amount of time on those and the Kid Gallon illustrations. And those are what what, uh, Mark Taylor was working on while I was originating the He-Man concept in the form of the He-Man trio. I see. And uh, Mark Taylor... And the Power and the Honor Foundation have those Kid Gallant and Robin in the Space Hoods illustrations, but they pretend they don't exist because if they did, they'd show what Mark Taylor was spending all his time on while I was originating. Okay. Well, touching on the uh, product show, uh, so I understand that Ray Wagner, he looked at your models and he, he was pretty happy with them. Well, let me say this. Mark Ray Wagner looked over all four concepts. And then, so then he said, let's market test all of these concepts to find out which one is preferred. And then right at the end of the product conference, very quietly, he pointed to my He-Man figures and he said, those have the power. Just like that. I I wonder, is there... Do you think there's any connection to that statement and the fact that in the filmation cartoon, He-Man, well, in the mini comics later, uh, He-Man says, I have the power when he transforms from Prince Adam? Well, it was played up greatly. You know, that was played up greatly in the He-Man line. Absolutely. And, and I guess on filmation. Mm-hmm. But uh, what... Um, you know, uh, the having his having the power was a real uh, marketing played that up as a very important thing for He-Man. Right, and it worked absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, let me say this. Let me say this. I I, I originated the key seed idea for Shira. The most basic idea about a product before it's named or anything is the key seed idea. That's the most essential thing about the product. 
Let me give you an example of a key seed idea, an aquatic figure. This became merman, a figure that flies. This became stratos. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So let me just read you an idea disclosure that I wrote less than two weeks after the product conference in 1980, the ni- December 18th, 19 product, 1980 product conference. The date of concept, the the draw, the idea disclosure number is 10385, and the title of the idea disclosure is He-Man Characters and Accessories, and the date of conception is 123080, and this and the contributor is myself, Roger Sweet. And this idea disclosure states, He-Man can be expanded into a broadline phenomena. For characters, in addition to bad guys and monsters, He-Man can be part of the ultimate super family consisting of his mate, She, in quotes. The ultimate dynamite superhero Amazon in proportions, tremendously powerful, gorgeous and sexy, with tanned skin and billowing long blonde hair, making Barbie look wimpy. (laughs) (laughs) So Mark Ellis must have seen this idea disclosure, and he, a little while later, pushed to have a female action line developed in the boys' toys marketing and design area. But Judy Shackelford, who was uh, um, a vice president in girls' toys marketing, heard about the idea and grabbed it for the girls' toys. Oh, I see. Interesting. Yeah. But, you know, they they claim, Janice Varney Hamlin claimed later that Jill Barad originated the name She-Ra. But Jill Barad just took the name She and added a Ra onto it. Know what I'm saying? Hmm. Right. Now, when the uh, toys were coming out, um, you named them Lord of Powers, and that decision. I, you know something? I never knew that He-Man was named Lords of Power. I never no. heard that. I've seen it printed, but I've never, I never heard that when I was working on the line. So there was never a discussion, never like a roundtable, like, what do we name these? What I, what I remember about He-Man was that we had an advertising agency, and and Mattel Marketing gave the project to, to find a name for the figure to the marketing agent, to the advertising, and they came up with a series of names, and, and one of them was Masters. That's all. I I never heard anything about the Lords of Power at that time. Oh, did you hear of any other potential names? Nope. Okay. Nope. And the name the name He Man. Now, did hey, you? I'm not saying I know everything. Do you know what I mean? Right. Sure. I'm just telling you what my experience was with it. Of course, and you were and, there at the and, time, and, and so. We, yeah. we, we love to pick your brain about, you know, I- anything you know about, you know, from your perspective, what was going on in the company at the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rex, uh, did you have a question? I did bring in parts from the Big Jim line for the Masters line, something that you were a part of, such as Big Jim Tiger converted the Battle Cat. Uh, yes. Uh, the Big Jim Tiger. Um, let's see. Oh, 
Okay. Uh, you know, I was talking to you about that He-Man characters and accessories. I did disclosure yeah. a couple minutes ago in relation to She-Ra. Yes, sir. Yes. Well, down at the bottom, further on down that idea disclosure, it says, it says, He-Man's pet is the Big Jim Tiger revamped. So I originated the concept for Battle Cat in this idea disclosure. That's awesome, sir. Yeah. And what? what I did was I made a list of other products from other lines that could be adapted to uh, he to the new He-Man line because when it first started, they 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 didn't have a whole lot of faith in it. And one of those products was the Big Jim Tiger. And what, at, at the time, He-Man was still nine and a half inches tall. They didn't know what size it was going to be. But when they reduced the Big Jim figure, I mean the uh, He-Man figure from nine and a half inches to five and a half inches, then that put the Big Jim Tiger in perfect scale for He-Man to ride it. It was a while before they knew what size He-Man was going to be. Well, it, it was fortunate because I know you used the Big Jim Tiger. There was the Falcon that became yeah. Zor. You mentioned well, other toy lines. that I gave to marketing, all of those were on that list, birds and everything. Oh. And not only that, in this, in this same idea disclosure, I said other characters utilizing Big Jim tooling could be the gorilla, which later became Jigor and came out in about the 2012 line. Uh, He-Man fans will recognize the name Gigor. Yeah, and I I originally took a black a black Big Jim gorilla and I painted him bright yellow with an olive green fur chest and uh, a red mouth with white teeth, and I put a black uh, um, uh, wax outfit on him for armor. And that was the original Jigor. That's wonderful. And, uh, yeah, we, a lot of us have that toy in our collection as part yeah, of the... Yeah, now, now the, the, then we wanted to, uh, uh, marketing didn't buy that, even though they thought it was terrific because it was so different from anything else. But then I had Ted Mayer do an illustration of a red Jigor with He-Man sitting on the back of it. So then several years later, Mark Taylor comes out and claims that he originated Jigor uh, with a bright red gorilla. Now, when you were oh, talking well. about your design, um, what ideas did you come up with? When you mentioned vehicles and all that, were you going to uh, keep borrowing from Big Jim? Or what vehicle designs did you uh, work on first? Well, the first... Um, the first 1982 vehicles were designed in visual design by Ted Mayer and Mark Taylor. And one of them was the, um, uh, there was this little vehicle that looked like it floated in the water. I don't remember the name of it. Uh, the Wind Raider? And then there was a, what's that? The Wind Raider? Yeah, the Wind Raider. And then there was one other vehicle that was done that pulled apart. And that was designed by Ted Mayer. That's the battle ram. Yeah, the battle ram, yeah. But then I, I um, in very early 
1982, just after the first year's Masters line came out, Mark Taylor left Mattel, and he freelanced for uh, until 1986 when um, Diana Troop hired him back to Mattel. But he never again worked on the Masters line, on the original series Masters line. Well, you're, you mentioned, you know, these key seed ideas like uh, an aquatic man being merman, yeah. a, a guy that yeah. flies being Stratos. Yeah. And so uh, what are some other key seed ideas? Well, that- let me, let me, let me uh, give you a list. In, mid, in mid-1980, Paul Cleveland, who was a new manager in Mattel Marketing, came to me bypassed my boss, Derek Gable, and came to me and asked me for a list of themes to be market tested. And so I'm going to read that list to you, okay? Fantastic. This was, this, this was um, I gave this list to Paul Cleveland in May 1980. Barbarian fantasy, futuristic space military a la Star Wars, current military a la G.I. Joe, Law enforcement, espionage a la James Bond, sports, superheroes, fantasy monsters, occupations, constructions, insectoid, and aquatic life. And aquatic life became merman. And insectoid became, in the 1983 line, buzz off. Oh, wow. Okay. So then... After the just after the master's line had been taken over and transferred to visual design from preliminary design in in early 1981, I wrote a list of thematic figure directions that I gave. I gave a copy to Paul Cleveland and I gave another copy to Mark Taylor. And that's and this list was this a lead heroic figure. He-Man, lead fig- heroic figures, might um, right-hand man assistant, this became Man-at-Arms. A lead bad guy character, this became Skeletor. A lead bad guy's right-hand man, this became Beast-Man. A beast-like monster-type figure, somewhat in char- like char- Star Wars Chewbacca or Big Jim or Bigfoot, again, this became Be- Beast-Man. A high-technology character, and this became Zodak. A flying character, this became Stratos. An aquatic character, this became Merman. An insectoid character, this became Buzzoff. And not mentioned on this list uh, was uh, a female character, uh, and this became Tila, and later on, Shira, Princess of Power. Wow. That's that's really cool. So the, so these these figures the these this is what I'm talking about as key seed idea. You know what I mean? Right, right. And then now, uh, uh, six out of eight of these figures, including the female, I originated the key seed idea for them. Mark Taylor came up with only two of them. He came up with Man at Arms, and he came up with Skeletor. And those were Mark Taylor's total contributions of origination to the original series He-Man line, that 1982 He-Man line. 
Yes, yeah, so my understanding is that uh, there were six to ten designers working for you in your preliminary design group, including Mark Taylor and Ted Mayer. And, uh, no, no, that's not true. That's I see. That's not true. Okay. Originally, uh, as t- I, I was given responsibility for the He-Man line in, for the 1983 line, and I was put under um, uh, Gene Kilroy, who uh, had been promoted to vice president. And I was taken away from Derek Gable's preliminary design group and put in charge of de- of originating and developing Masters product. So, but I was given only one designer, a guy by the name of Colin Bailey, to work with me on the entire 1983 Masters line. And within six months, he left me and went into another group. So I developed all of the product in the 1983 line by myself. Oh, but wow. then, as the line became more and more successful, I was given a group of six to ten designers. I but see. in very early 1982, I mean 1981, wait a minute, no, in very early 1982, yeah, in very early 1982, Mark Taylor left Mattel. And uh, Mark Taylor only developed one other product for the 1983 line, and then that was it. And so for a year developing the 1983 line, I had nobody but myself working on the entire line. And then in 19, uh, then the line became quite successful and feelings improved toward me. And so I was given a group of six to 10 designers to design the, the rest of the entire uh, uh, original series line. And that line, here's what that line did sales-wise. 1982, 38.2 million. 1983, 80 million. 1984, 111 million. 1985, 250 million. 1986, 400 million. 1987, 7 million. That's a lot the of money. Line dropped, the line dropped from 400 million in sales down to 7. I see. And damn near well, put Mattel out of business. What do you uh, what do you attribute to that huge drop? I attribute the fact that the line was oversold for one to two years, and in addition, uh, um, uh, Transformers came out, and then not long after that, uh, Transformers came out in like 1986, I think, or something like that. Well, for and our audience, sir, could you explain what oversold means? They sold too much product. Okay. Oversold means too much. Too much product was sold. Took more, more than the market could bear. They uh, made too and, much and, product, and as a result, He-Man products swamped the toy shelves. But in addition, Transformers was gaining in popularity, and not not long after that, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came out, and it was fairly popular too. Wasn't there also something about um, the the when uh, you got later in the line, kids couldn't pick up a traditional He-Man and Skeletor uh, the way they could some of the newer figures, well, oh, and that's oh, hey, kind of what stunted a, it another, as well. There, there's another there's another factor with the 1987 line. It was told so it was loaded 
by marketing with weird products that didn't really relate to He-Man, like eggs and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Oh, the Meteorbs. Yeah, and, and several other products that just were not, you know, didn't have the same type of appeal as the rest of the Masters. Oh, I see. Sorry, that goes to the question I was going to, is that the way the line started and the way it progressed, it did diverge. And I was going to ask you about your thoughts on that. Do you think part of that is that it just strayed or or did you, or were you okay with the direction it went? No, because those eggs and all those little strange products that, that didn't relate to strength or anything, I thought were terrible product, you know. And in addition to that, marketing decided to way oversell the line. You know, those were, those were the two main factors, in my opinion. And so oh. if you were, again, I like to play... What if, if you were able to do it, uh, what would you have done, do you think, to save the line if you could have? Well, after Masters collapsed, I worked for about a year and a half trying to come up with ideas to revive the line. And and marketing didn't buy any of them. And then finally, in 1989, they had a relaunch of the line, which was horrible. Uh, Did you watch the cartoon? What's that? Did you watch the New Adventures cartoon? I watched cartoon? about five minutes of the cartoon, totally. Uh, of, <laughs> you, you're talking about the you're talking about the New Adventures cartoon. I'm talking about the product itself. Okay. They they reduced in 1989. They reduced the size of He-Man and made him relatively physically puny compared to the original He-Man. And they and they made him uh, so he didn't have a tan, and you know it was just ridiculous. And the product, and they took him into a futuristic space, which wasn't done well either. Uh, I wanted to t- go back very briefly when you said that you pitched a lot of ideas to try to revive Masters of the Universe. Do you recall some of those ideas? Yeah, we we uh, one of the ideas was to take. He-Man into military, into a military theme. Hmm. Okay. And uh, and you know that and that could have been done well. Mm-hmm. But uh, we, I were, I remember working on eight different directions, and marketing wouldn't buy any of them. I see. And uh, other than Castle Grayskull, tra- and then I was finally transferred out of Master, and I had a choice of either going to work for Mark Taylor or going into Barbie, and I decided to go into Barbie. Oh, I see. Well, looking back, since we're getting to the end, um, you, what were your ideas of, I mean, we understood how you felt about the new adventures, and we've had two iterations with the third one coming back. And so I want your opinion. What did you think of the uh, 2000X light? And then the other ones that came up. I'm not real familiar. Are you talking about the classics figures at all? Well, there was the one in between that came out in 2002, which gave them that hyper detail. Yeah. The. I'm not. I'm not familiar with it. I okay. haven't kept up with it. Yeah. But you know the classics, and they did pay honor to you. I mean, with uh, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, and yeah, but let me say this about the Vicron introduction. Badly done. How so? 
Well, the the detailing and and the first shorts showing through all three themes, all this kind of stuff. It was just badly designed. And are you aware of the new ones and that are not, coming and out? And not only that, but but Vicron was not He-Man. You know what I mean? It's a totally different mm-hmm. name that I'd never heard of before. I came up with a character before He-Man that I called Vicon, and I showed illustrations. He was a powerful guy. This was before I came up with He-Man, and I showed these to Derek Gable and Dennis Bosley in the preliminary design group, and they it was they were line drawings, and they just didn't think anything about them. So then, this in 2011 or 12, Mattel comes out with Vicron. Where'd that name come from? Was it a takeoff on Vicon? Who knows? You know, I thought the whole thing was ridiculous, and I've never been given credit for originating the He-Man trio. Uh, again, I remember like I saw those, you know, and then I was like, oh, they, you know, they're they're paying homage to the uh, prototypes, and so, uh, you know, it's I'm a little. But they, but but for instance, let me just give you examples. They had they had boots that wrapped around, but only partially, so that you saw the other boots showing through when you turned the figure around. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. My original He-Man, trio He-Man figures were beautifully designed all the way around. Keep wondering how, you know, how your your line would have looked, you know, if you had a little bit more your way. Because I'm yeah. hearing that line kind of diverged a bit, which it happens. You know, yeah. there's a history of that. And I still well, wonder, hey, though. It's, it, it's okay if they diverge in a good way. But if they diverge in a bad way, then it's not good. And are you aware of the hey, new ones? Hey, let, let me say one other thing. When I originated the He-Man trio, I worked 60 hours of overtime in three weeks to come up with those figures. That means like I worked three 60-hour weeks in a row. Oh, wow. And I, and those figures were revolutionary models in that I used sheet wax to create all those body parts, all those uh, outfit parts. And if I wouldn't have done that, if if I would have had to take the time to have injection molded parts made or something like that or how to hard plastic, it would never have happened. And that, that was an incredible modeling breakthrough at the time. Well, uh, go ahead. Well, I so you never watched the filmation cartoon, correct? Hardly at all. Maybe okay. five minutes. All right. And I wanted to to ask you quickly. Uh, there was that lawsuit uh, that said that basically, like Mattel stole ideas from you know Conan the Barbarian. Uh, did that lawsuit have any impact on the work that you and others at Mattel were doing on the Masters of the Universe line? No, because I think uh, the Conan people lost that lawsuit. They did. They did, didn't they? They yeah, did. They did. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and one, one, my last question for myself is: yeah. uh, there's this mystery that's been uh, in the He-Man fan community since for forever, for the longest time. <sighs> Okay, so, go ahead. So there's this big history, uh, mystery in the Motu Masters of the Universe community of fans and collectors. Yeah. 
And it's that there is a toy, a He-Man toy, that looks basically just like He-Man, that is, it has brown hair instead of blonde hair, and people have, some people have it in their collections, but they don't... They paid like thousands of dollars for it or something? Right. Yeah. And but nobody really can confirm where it came from, and so I've got I to ask I you. I can't either. I'd say it's I'd say it's fictitious. Hmm. But who, okay. who am I to say? Mm-hmm. So officially, there was never a Bohemian dubbed Wonder Bread. No, 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 no. I've heard that too. Yeah, I've never heard of a there. There was never a Wonder Bread He Man that I knew of while I was working on the original series of He-Man. Hmm, okay. But I've heard people have paid quite a bit of money for it. Right. Well, as to uh, wrap it up here, and uh, I always like to ask, you know, what ifs, and was there a figure, was there a character you would have liked to have put into that line? Absolutely. Schizo. (laughs) This was a guy that I designed in maybe probably about 1983, and he was vertically split down the middle, and the right side of him was hideously ugly and nasty, and the left side of him was absolutely wonderful and white and golden. And the right side guy is holding uh, a horrible uh, club or something, and the right side guy is holding a flower. And I just, I've always been, I've always loved this guy, and I showed him the marketing, and they said that's great, but we but how can we position him? We've got to either make him a good guy or a bad guy. So they ended up making him too bad. Yeah, but he I was mean... my all-time favorite figure. And then one other figure that I did that never made the line at the time I called him the Glob, but a better name for him would be Big Mouth. He was a big, heavy, fat guy, and his mouth was at his waist. And so when you opened up the upper top part of him, you could actually stick another male action figure into his mouth, which was at his waist. And I think I've seen these designs in the uh, Power and Honor book or uh, one of the makings. Could be, yeah. And it's always a shame because uh, there was like a rhinoceros man, too, that I would have loved to have seen. Yeah, yeah. And so it's always amazing. Uh, hearing about this and um, we're coming up on the hour and so right. I would like to I would like to thank you sir uh, we got a lot of good information from you but is there any uh, I usually ask our guest is there uh, any place that uh, again fans can uh, get in touch with you or again see your work or again I I, I usually I, well, I know nobody's going to a convention time, at this time we really can't get together you know, because of the coronavirus. Of course. I'm staying away from everybody. <laughs> I mean, like, indefinitely. Uh, hopefully, uh, once all this is over, you know, we can catch you back on a, on the circuit. Once, yep. hopefully, I'm, I'm going to be positive about it. But yeah. uh, hopefully, well, we'll catch you back. Let me say this. Yesterday, I turned 85. Oh, wow. happy birthday. Yeah. Happy, happy birthday. birthday. Happy birthday. And I work out an hour and a half a day, six days a week. Wow. And at age 84, three times, I did 35 wide grip pull-ups. 
from a dead wow. man on a bar. That's impressive. Yeah, and so I I weigh about 160. I'm about 5'10", and I stay in really terrific condition. It's my top priority. And so uh, uh, even, a, you know, a year or two years from now, there's an extremely strong chance that I'd be able to go to some kind of a power con or convention. Go ahead. Oh, just let, really... let me say one other thing. Thank you so much for doing this interview and thanks to all the fans for being so wonderful to me. Well, we really appreciate you and, being. And I yeah. went to the I went to the PowerCon as well as the Bellingham Comic Con, and the fans were absolutely wonderful. I mean, they just could not have been nicer. Well, it was great meeting you there. Well, thank you. Well, we do hope to uh, run into you in the future again, sir. And uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. We got a lot of good information from you, sir. So. Uh, we're at the top of the hour. I don't want to take up any of more any more of your time, sir. And we, again, a million thank yous for being on the show. Yes, thank well, you so and, much. And the same thank to you. you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mr. Sweet. Okay. Yeah, thank Bye. you. Thank you, Mr. Sweet. Okay. 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 Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> hey, have, have a good evening, sir. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. I would like to thank Roger Sweet for joining us on this episode of Council of the First Ones. Also, remember to catch all the latest news of Masters of the Universe over at heman.org. Reminder, PowerCon tickets are still on sale. It is scheduled for August 8th and 9th. Hopefully, it will still be on. <laughs> Fingers are crossed. And I hope all of you are staying home and staying safe. Hoping everything is well. Till next time. Good journey. I'm Renee. I'd like to thank you all for listening to the podcast. It was fun interviewing Roger Sweet. I hope to uh, get more people on and document the full experience of the making of Masters of the Universe. To catch the latest nerd news, and I know you're at home, you got nothing to do, so follow us. We're Nerds on the Couch and our Facebook page. And subscribe to Council of the First Ones wherever you get your podcast. Thank you, and good journey. This is Rex. It's wonderful to be back again here tonight on the show uh, during quarantine. I hope everyone's staying safe and well. Good journey. And this is Sean Scovarna, and I want to say thank you to Roger Sweet for being with us again tonight. Um, if you want to hear a, another podcast as well about Masters that involves the literature and the animation and the movies and stuff where we just discussed that, I'm on another uh, podcast called The uh, Legends of Grayskull. Check us out. Since you're in quarantine, why not? Go for it, guys. Till next time, good journey. Thanks again. And this is David Clark. A huge thanks for, the, for Roger Sweet to come on our show. And I want to invite everybody to go check out on Facebook the Masters of the Universe Origins Fans Group, where we talk about uh, the Origins line from Mattel, as well as Masters of the WWE Universe. So go take a look. Thank you, and good journey. The opinions expressed by the guest on this episode do not reflect the opinions of the host or this podcast. This has been a Nerds on the Couch production in association with adultcollector.org.